0: Welcome to Career Chat, where we discuss career stories to help find a path for you. I'm your host, Andrea LeBaron, and it's my goal to help you find meaningful work. Martha Ball spent 26 years in the public schools of California and Utah teaching social studies to a wide array of students. But it was in middle school that Martha felt she had the most impact. Today, as a retired veteran teacher, Martha shares many experiences that influenced her career including teaching a group of black men in the 60s Bay Area to an amazing personal experience with Mother Teresa in 1997, just three weeks before she died. We'll talk about the importance of teaching history and civics in current curriculum, finding credible sources of information, and deconstructing the Capitol riot with students. Oh, and Martha recommends two books everyone should read. Don't miss this one. Welcome, Martha. I am so thrilled to have you as my guest today. Thank you for being on.
1: It's my pleasure to be with you.
0: Thank you so much. And could you introduce yourself to all of us before we get started, where you're from, a little bit about your family?
1: My name is Martha Hales Ball. I grew up in Salt Lake City. I lived 20 years in the Bay Area in California. I have five children and 15 great-grandchildren and two great-granddaughters.
0: Oh, my goodness. That is so delightful. How fun. I, I wanted to have you on, Martha, because you were such a, a wonderful influence on me growing up. We were in the same congregation at church, and all through my teen years, uh, you were a Sunday school teacher, and I just always felt like I needed to listen to you because you, what you were saying was important, and I, I really think some of that had to do with your background as a, as a teacher. Um, you just knew how, how to teach, and you were so good at it, and, and you knew how to deal with us kids. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I appreciate very much you're telling me that. That means a lot.
0: Oh, well, it it really means a lot to me. I mean, this was over, gosh, 30 years ago. So uh, your example has really stayed with me. You ended up teaching social studies for 26 years in Utah and California, right? Yes. And if we were to go back to the beginning, did you always want to be a teacher? Or how did you decide that you wanted to go into teaching?
1: Well, I have to give you a little personal background about my family. Yes. My father was a public school educator for, I believe, over 40 years. And many of these years, he taught history and civics at Davis High School and then at South High School in Salt Lake. And then he later became a principal. My mother taught Elementary students before she had her children, and all of my five siblings are educators elementary, oh junior high, senior high, and college. So, around the dinner table, topics of education were discussed regularly. And because my father taught history and loved it, I that's when. At a very young age, I knew I wanted to be a teacher, and I never considered it anything else.
0: It sounds like it was just a family business, right? It was. <laughs> and, and really in the blood, almost. Um, so you got your bachelor's degree at the University of Utah in history and secondary education. Did you teach for a few years before um you went back to get your master's degree in educational studies?
1: Well, I'm trying to think. I taught 14 years before I got my master's. It was around
0: that. Mm. And was that, um, did you teach at like the uh, elementary school, high school level?
1: No, I taught for 26 years. In both public schools of Utah and California, I taught ages 12 through adult. And the main subjects I taught were U.S. history and government civics. But because of the nature of education, I also taught world history, geography, California history, And Utah studies. Wow! And so that's just just to let you know too. Eighteen years were teaching seventh, eighth, and ninth graders, and I want you to know when I graduated in education, I swore I would never teach junior high, and I (laughs) ended up teaching 18 years of 7th, 8th, and ninth; two years of high school, and six years were adult education. Uh, This was in California, all high school. They were dropouts who were coming back to get their high school degree.
0: Wow. Okay, there's so much I want to ask you about that. First of all, um, was middle school every the worst that you you know, everything that you thought it would be in a bad way, or was what, what was it that you
1: that you liked about that? Well, I wouldn't have been good if I'd started right out. But I'd had most of my children had not gone through middle school and I knew how critical it was mm. and how influential a teacher could be for good, because so many things are changing in their lives. And I was amazed to see how much I enjoyed it. Like I said, I'd had previously to that eight years of dealing with high school and adults. And I found with the high school kids, that they were harder to reach. Those who wanted to learn, wanted to learn. And the other kids were quite cynical where Mm. junior high kids weren't at all. You could really have an impact on their thinking.
0: Oh, that's such a great insight. And I'm sure that helps all of us with um, middle school children. feel better about that stage because it is hard oh but and you asked about
1: surprises there was probably one every day in middle school
0: (laughs) depending
1: depending on whose hormones were out of whack that day
0: (laughs) that is so true oh I love that um so did you, you did your time with um, the high school and then the adults coming back uh, um, to school before you did middle school. Right. Okay. So what was it about teaching adults that was different than, than um, what you taught later with the middle schoolers?
1: Well, I had a very unique experience because I taught the adults in the 60s and I taught four nights a week, three hours, and they were all black men. And it was in the rage of black is beautiful in the 60s, the beginning of the Black Panthers and the one course. They all had to complete was government slash civics and it was I learned more from them I'm sure than they ever learned from me and I learned how important it was to be honest about the mistakes that had been made and were being made and to be a good listener and to engage
0: them in conversation. Wow, there's so much there to talk about. So this was in the Bay Area, right? Yes. Okay, obviously not in Salt Lake City. No, I wouldn't imagine. It <laughs> in Oakland, California. In okay, so when you say um, how important it was to be honest, do you mean how important it was to be honest about our government's um, shortfalls in terms of how we had dealt with black Americans in the past. Okay. When
1: When you look at the constitution and see it started out only three fifths of a black counted for a vote. Right. And we had to talk about the progression that this was the choice part about the constitution was amendments and those Mm. changes. The other thing that I couldn't do today, but I was very frightened to Mm -hmm. look at this. There were 30 men, they were all black, and they all had afros. I mean, they were a good foot out from their head. (laughs) And and growing up in Salt Lake, I had never had the opportunity to go to school with Blacks, not my high school. And at college, the only Blacks were people from Africa on scholarships. Mm-hmm. And so this was a new experience for me. And it was very interesting to me because one thing that was taught in my home religiously was you could never say a bad thing about any race or religion and Mm. that was a given and I remember standing in front of those gentlemen and wondering why I was so frightened and I was standing behind a desk and I was relieved because they couldn't see how my legs were shaking. Mm. And I did something like I say, you couldn't do today, but I thought their hair really frightens me. I've mm. never seen anything like it. And I I said to the gentleman, I said, would you mind if I touched your hair? It really frightens me I I said and this is where I say you to be honest I'm I want you to know I haven't had the opportunity to go to school with with any blacks and I said would you mind and this one man said (laughs) what's very embarrassing he said whatever turns you on. <laughs> and so. I I went up and I touched their hair and it was the most amazing experience. It was like boing-a-boing. It just bounced off and it had so much body. And I said, how do you get it like this? They <laughs> brought out combs that looked like pitchforks. They were that wide, and then they showed me how they combed it back to get the afro. And then one of the the gentlemen said to me, well, can we touch yours? I said, sure. And he felt it, and he said, bros, it's just like cotton. It's horrible. (laughs) But that really broke the boundaries. They knew I was being up front with them and they were then up front with me. And when you talk about the problems we have today, it is so critical that we can somehow get to know one another better. And the second thing, and then I'll finish on this, is almost Every night in class, these tough men, and they were ages 18 to 30, all had dropped out. Some had been kicked out. Some had to drop out to help work at home. And they would refer to their dear, sweet J- Jesus in class. And they would say things like, well, Miss Ball, you know what the good book says And they would leave me notes on my desk to read when I got home. And they all would be scriptural references to what we had discussed in class. Like I say, I learned more from them than I'm sure they ever learned from me.
0: When you said, too, that you learned how to be a good listener, did you hear stories from them about where they were coming from and what they were having to overcome in order to be in that class
1: oh yes poverty there were some in that class that were so poor growing up they did not know they lived on a bay the Mm. Oakland is right on the bay well there's Oakland and Alameda but Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just astounding. And also, one young man was crippled for life. He was stooped over. He was eight years old. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he almost was beaten to death by the police. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the Black Panthers were very frightening. But... The press only played up the bad things. They never reported that they were gathering food, serving breakfast for all the kids before they went to school, and also getting clothes for them to have. And so I, I learned how biased a press, the press can be.
0: And isn't that interesting that we're still we're still dealing with those the, issues fifty I, years later
1: it's it breaks my heart because everything we discuss
0: it's as though nothing has changed mm. Well, this is part of why I wanted to interview you because you have such a wealth of experience and knowledge and I feel like you know we have just come through a very intense and acrimonious presidential election Um, there's so much polarization going on in politics and you have a background in teaching civics social studies history I would love to know from your perspective at this point um, if you were teaching social studies last fall or even if you were teaching it now what would you want your students to know having gone through this really difficult time
1: I would emphasize knowledge of the facts and help them find the sources that give facts. I would uh, set up, for example, have a group report the news and watch Fox News and give them a topic that would be in the news that week. And I would have one group get the answers from what they heard on Fox News. Then I'd have an, another go to one of the cable networks like MSNBC, and then mm-hmm. I have a third do PBS because and I would explain to them that these are very differences in opinion, and the PBS, I said, I'm not going to tell you what it's viewed as, but after you all give your reports, then we'll come to some conclusions. And it was very interesting for them. And, and I pointed out, they, they said, well, PBS, th- we got both points of view. Hmm. and i said that's why it is recognized as the most neutral the most neutral broadcast in america today now i said i i would give them examples of places you could go to check facts and have them all do that as homework i would go into discussion techniques, and have the students set the rules for any time we would discuss something controversial, or really, any discussion. And, and I, I did this when I taught, and it's always interesting. The students don't want someone to say, your question's stupid. Mm. or duh. (laughs) And so we talked about that. And I remember one student saying, I hate it when I'm saying something and other students are waving their hand and he said, or she said, they're not listening. So we talked about, and I had taken courses on discussion techniques and We talked about a way to remedy that would be when a student finished speaking, before the next student could ask the question, they would have to say to the student, now I wanna make sure I understood what you just said. Is this what you meant? Then the student could say yes or no. And then, they would have an understanding. Or if they, there were some disagreements, they'd work it through. Then the next student would ask their question. And the students really liked that. And I would always have groups, set up discussion. And I would just say, today, this is so critical because we can't survive, a democracy can't survive unless we listen to each other and learn how to compromise. We would have never gotten the Constitution without Benjamin Franklin getting some opposite delegates together to talk out their differences. So that's a thing I would do.
0: Do you feel like then that, that um, that's lacking right now in the curriculum that's being taught? Like, I read earlier that um, a lot of, because we put so much emphasis on STEM um, subjects, right? a little bit of this, this focus on civics and government has kind of uh, floundered the last few years. And I'm wondering if students are, are actually getting this kind of training or if, if that needs to be a priority. Absolutely. It has to be
1: a priority. I'm working now with the State Office of Education with a civics project they're trying to get going. Well, they've been working on it for months. And the problem with The core curriculum, when it started, we all liked the idea of coordinating. But when we got, like you said, to the STEM testing, I've talked with elementary teachers who said they have no time whatsoever. Now, I don't know if this has changed recently, this was in several years ago. They said they never have time to teach history or anything civics they're so plugged in to having to prepare for the tests and I think that is absolutely fatal for our country.
0: I've That's a common complaint that I've heard as well that teaching having to cover all the subjects that are taught that are tested on has has kind of change the the importance of what is actually taught and I it's funny I have a question that I wanted to ask you that if if you could spend 15 minutes with the governor about you know talking about education what would you want him to know (laughs) but maybe you've already done that oh no
1: um our our state doesn't seem to understand And never had how important small class size is. Mm. It affords you to have an an impact on young people because you have small numbers. I never had less than 36 in a class and sometimes 40. At junior high, you sometimes feel like you're just babysitting. Right. And where class size matters also is you can work with kids on building their self-esteem. And that is critical. If kids feel good about themselves, then they don't get into these divisive groups where it's, me against you. They don't feel like they've been left out or cheated. And I, I look at, I have a son that has been able to send his children to private schools. They've never had more than a 10 in a class. Wow. Now, all my grandkids are equally pretty smart, But what those grandkids have been able to do, I've seen essays come back from English teachers that are rewritten three times. Expressions like, the protagonist isn't strong enough. I didn't even know what a protagonist was till I was in college. (laughs) <laughs> and and stronger use of a of, of pronoun here or an adjective. Those grandkids could write anything. And they, they had a physics teacher. And again, they paid them. The teachers were paid. He had a a PhD from MIT in physics, every student that took his class got a four or a five on the AP physics test. I mean, well, wow. you know, it, it, it's, it makes a difference. And, and the other thing I would say is you've got to make, Civics and government, first of all, must be a required course in high school and, and before they're seniors, and, and you make sure it is part of the curriculum in junior high school that there is emphasis when you teach U.S. history on the Bill of Rights and the civics part. And, 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 of course, pay the teachers what they deserve. And at least start. Pay for in-service classes so they can get new training on, on these subjects, and particularly civics. Anyway, those are just a few.
0: <laughs> well, I love that, and I... I... feel like those are such valuable points and ones that I think many, many people in Utah who are educators would agree with. I just have a little bit of a window into it in my job, and I, I just completely agree with everything you said there. Let me ask you this. If you had been teaching a class this year after the riot at the Capitol, how would you have started a discussion about that? Or would you have even wanted to address that in class?
1: Oh, I I think it would be very important. I would uh, maybe let a few days simmer Mm -hmm. and say, as more facts are gathered, we will discuss this and also ongoing. And Mm -hmm. I, I would show the desecration property what free speech truly means and you don't have the right to incite people to kill mm. and and go through the bill of rights what is free speech what is the right to assemble and make sure they understand and then have a discussion about what is free speech, what is the right to assemble, and and make sure they're clear on the facts. I would have them see the picture of the scaffold they put up to hang Pence, and how close many of those senators and members of the House came to being killed Mm -hmm. And, and just have them talk about now, what are you going to do? How can we put less gas on the fire? And I would then go back to our discussion and say, we've got Two different opinions here. We have people who believe it was right, people who believe it wasn't. But you are the, going to be the leaders of the next generation, so we need to start solving problems, and then point out the facts. And as as much as they may not want to hear it, have them check where they can check to get the proper information and just make it clear how difficult it is but it is we're fighting for our democracy
0: um, I've heard it said you know that we live in the age of information but we now we live in the age of disinformation right and so much of our job as parents and educators is teaching kids how to find accurate sources of information because there's so much more to sift through now, right? Right. And I, I think that's what you're saying, that this is critical to going forward in our republic, is that we have to figure out how to find credible sources. Right. And have the kids look up and have
1: them search What are credible sources? And how much should you be on Facebook? And how helpful is it? And how have have them listen to how one-sided Facebook is. Mm. And people only listen to the ones they want to listen to or the pods. And I think teachers today have to be very savvy about how you educate young minds about the use of Facebook, Twitter, all of this, so that they can see it's for the betterment of society. Right.
0: Now, looking at um, your career... And thinking of this long uh, career in education that you've had, what brings you the most satisfaction looking?
1: Oh, uh, seeing change in students' attitudes. Hmm. You know, for example, when I uh, got into doing the three R's project, which is a national program that was set up because of the diversity that was and the divisiveness that was beginning to show up in the 1990s with people wanting to pull their kids out of public education, putting them in private, and a lot of it was over religion mm-hmm. because they felt the schools had been very negative toward religion. And so this program went about to show how you could constitutionally teach about religion. And it was within the bounds of law. And I think one of the most gratifying things to teach in Utah when we have a dominant faith that most students don't have the opportunity to know people of other faiths or to learn about them, just general things. Mm -hmm. And so part of the course is to help teachers set up a world religions unit where it would fit into the curriculum. And every curriculum if history has an area where you can fit in religion and when i every time i asked students to name the major religions of the world they would say catholic and mormon <laughs> and they it, it didn't even know That both fit into a category of Christian. Now it's been, you know, 12 years since I've been out of the classroom. I would hope that's changed. But for them to be able to know that Hinduism was one of the largest religions in the world. Because it was the dominant faith of India, they were they were fascinated to know this, and and Buddhism, and Muslim. Some as we got older, because of the and I wasn't teaching when uh, the nine eleven took place, but we'd had the trade center bombings. Most recognized Jewish, but to, to, to know about these five major world religions and that Catholicism was by far the largest Christian religion. And the, even the parents thanked me for the knowledge the students had gained. And I did teacher workshops where I had representatives of the major, these five major faiths in Utah, teach the teachers just the basics. You know, when do they worship? How do they pray? What is their standard scripture? What day do they go to church? Are there diet restrictions, clothing restrictions? What are the fundamentals of their belief just basics and to see students learn that I had one student who was so excited to tell the class because he had been at the airport and it was noon and we talked about the five major religions and he saw a man get out his prayer rug and go over to the corner and face east and he said his noon prayer and his brother was making fun of him who was older and he was so excited to tell the class. I told my brother he wasn't being respectful that that man was um, Muslim and he they prayed five times a day and he faced Mecca because that was the center and to see the excitement that the young man had, that he was knowledgeable, and no one likes to be made to feel ignorant or what's the word we always use? love to call? I can't think of it. <laughs> anyway, the, well, that, those were the exciting things to see I love, the change yeah. in attitudes.
0: I love that story because it just shows you how much knowledge is power and knowledge is empathy. Absolutely. And going back to how you felt teaching those black men in the Bay Area in the 60s when you had knowledge of their lives and their their situations the fear went away. Absolutely. And they became
1: really I felt we were friends.
0: Yeah. And couldn't we all use a little bit more of that in the world?
1: (laughs) Right. And and if if we don't have the opportunity, there are books to read and teachers in the summer when they have time off need to get books on diversity. Right now, there's a book out that I think every history teacher must read. I think every teacher should read. I got it for all my children. It's called Caste, C-A-S-T-E. And it compares slavery in the United States with the caste system in India.
0: Oh, I've heard of this. And it gives
1: a history. It is well written and remarkable and that's what if we can't sit down in a normal situation at least be knowledgeable get our heads out of the cement and learn
0: is there anything that you wish you had done differently when you look back at your career
1: Oh, I wish I had the wisdom I had when I ended, <laughs> but you only gain that through the experience yeah right, right. Uh, i I wish I could still teach, but my health is such uh, that i and, and then you get to a point too. you just wear out. I loved teaching because it was such a growing process. I never used. Usually the same lesson plan twice. I'd have the basic uh, understanding I wanted and the goals, but I would change it around every year based on new things I had learned. And, and so I loved that part about teaching is, is you, you were always growing in knowledge and, and learning uh, about classes and ways to impact skills uh, and students.
0: Um, you know, as one final question, part of my goal for doing this podcast is to help people find meaningful work. And I'm wondering, as you think about your career and the careers of others that you know, um, could you give us a final thought or piece of advice on finding a career? Find
1: something you feel passionate about. And I always felt like I wanted to be a teacher. And don't be afraid to change. But I, I just think if you have that, desire, and passion, you will be successful because you get excited about what you're doing, and you look forward. Every year is a new group of students. That's why I like, I, I I never thought I'd be good with the elementary, being all day with a group. Now, I don't know if that's changed, but I loved the 50 minutes and then a new group would come in. Mm-hmm. And I just think if you feel strongly about what you do, then you can, it can get you through the lows, which, of course, you will have. And it certainly has highs. And that would be my advice, and I would... Going back, people said to me, oh, you could have made so much more money. Why didn't you do this or do that? Or why didn't you go to high school? You would have had a much greater impact. I felt I had the greatest impact staying with junior high students. And that's where I found my niche. And others, it will be other things. But I think passion is critical, and it's what keeps you going. And I want to just finish with saying one quick thing. When I got to go to India, and look for workshops, teachers. There are many workshops, uh, locally in your district, statewide, nationally, internationally. And when I went to India, Mother Teresa was still alive. And she had been, in fact, we met her three weeks before she died. Oh, wow. And she wasn't sure if uh, she would be able to meet with us. But finally, she decided, and they brought her out in a wheelchair. And she wanted us to meet her one by one. And I was the first one she motioned to come up. And... It just, her presence made me feel I, I should kneel, and I did. And she took my, one of my hands and grasped it with her two hands and looked me right in the eye and said, if I can remember, I wrote it down, Our children are the greatest resource, resource the world has they are more precious than gold or diamonds teach them well but more important love them and I just think that's when you have compassion about what you do you really do grow to love those students and want them to develop and be
0: the best they can I don't think we could end on anything better than that, Martha. <laughs> well, it's A been... personal visit with Mother Teresa's. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And Thank it was... you so much. Oh, I can't even imagine. And
1: one more thing. Just a good book. Uh, I just was given. A, a, and it would be good for any age. It's called Ruby Bridges. This is your time. The little girl who was the first to integrate the public schools, after the court ruling, and it has her picture, and then all the pictures, and it's it's pictures, it's only like 50 pages, but it's like four sentences on each page, then with the picture, and one thing many of us forget, when she went into the classroom, the parents pulled out all the white kids and a teacher had to be hired from Boston and she came and taught Ruby the whole year alone and it's just a wonderful it's it's like a oh a four by seven size and it has these authentic pictures and just something for for children Grow up with that and and be aware of what that meant. All right.
0: (laughs) That's such a great recommendation. I, as someone who loves children's literature, I sure appreciate you bringing that up. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining me today. This has been such a treat. And I just really appreciate uh, all of your experience and wisdom. Fun chatting with you. Thanks for joining me today on Career Chat. Any links we talked about will be in the episode notes. You can find me on Instagram at Career Chat Pod. And if you like this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcast. See you next time. Welcome to Career Chat, where we discuss career stories to help find a path for you. I'm your host, Andrea LeBaron, and it's my goal to help you find meaningful work. Matt Robertson is a music educator who teaches grades three through five at the Waterford School in Salt Lake City. He's also a gifted musician who has performed with many local choir and instrumental groups. While Matt's passion and career are intertwined now, he spent many years in jobs that left him feeling like a failure. Desperate to make a change, Matt went back to school and earned a master's in choral conducting from the University of Utah. We'll talk about careers in music education versus music performance, the sacrifices his wife and family made for him to go back to school, the joy he feels now in a career he's good at, and his advice for starting kids in music lessons. Let's jump in.